All right, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Peds in a Pod. Today we're going to be talking about pediatric trauma with Dr. Landman here at Riley. Welcome, Dr. Landman. Thank you. It's good to be here. Dr. Landman is a pediatric surgeon here at Riley Hospital for Children. He's also the an assistant professor of surgery at IU School of Medicine and associate trauma director here at Riley. So we're excited to have him on the show. And we're going to be talking about pediatric trauma kind of in general here today. We've talked about pediatric head trauma before, so if you want to go back and listen to that, I'd suggest you do that. Um, and again, pediatric trauma deserves more of a talk than what we're going to give you here, but for the board's purposes, we're going to just try and give you some pearls. So I think from after the ABCs, we'll just go head to toe if that's okay with Absolutely, you. Absolutely, yeah. That sounds good. I think, um, just like you said, David, this does require uh, you know a long, long uh amount of time to get through everything so hopefully we can give you a general overview of what uh, what you'll need and some of the highlights uh, for the purposes of your preparation so if we go from we skip we'll skip head um, yeah. so if we go right towards neck so if we identify some kind of trauma to the neck what are some things that we should be looking for or maybe question stems that could lead us into evaluation of neck trauma yeah, I think one of the most important things when you're looking at neck trauma is um, kind of twofold. It's sort of the front of the neck and the back of the neck, the bony structure, cervical spine injuries, and then the front of the neck. Um, and you may uh, be familiar with the zones of the neck. So for the first, uh, for the back of the neck, talking about cervical spine, you know, the important thing is uh, midline tenderness, torticollis, uh, any pain with motion. Uh, these patients, particularly patients who um, have altered mental status, should have cervical spine immobilization until, um, until you're able to, um, in some way, clear the cervical um, spine. Uh, many times in conscious patients, that's done um, clinically. Uh, First-line uh, imaging in most patients would be plain films with a AP and lateral film and odontoid if the patient is old enough to comply with opening their mouth. Cervical spine injuries in and of themselves could take a whole talk. Um, the important things when it, comes to come to, when it comes to clearing a cervical spine or thinking about a cervical spine injury, uh, in addition to the physical examination, is thinking about where that cervical spine injury might take place. Uh, we know that in, in babies and infants, it's going to generally be higher in the cervical spine in older children, adolescents, uh, cervical spine injuries are generally lower. Uh, obviously, in patients with altered mental status uh, and uh, breathing issues, you, you obviously want to think about uh, uh, the inability of the diaphragm to move with uh, cervical spine injury higher than C345 keeps the diaphragm alive, as you guys remember about the phrenic nerve. As I mentioned, the minimal imaging is the plain films. Uh, advanced imaging is going to be uh, CT of the C-spine and uh, or MRI of the cervical spine. Uh, there's uh, PCARN studies that show you know who should get um, more a higher evaluation for, I should say, a more intensive evaluation for cervical spine injuries, and they list um, I think a good uh, set of uh, findings that should prompt. Uh, additional imaging. So neck pain, midline, posterior neck tenderness, decreased range of motion, torticollis, any altered mental status less than 14, uh, GCS less than 14. If there's a focal neurologic finding uh, on your neurological examination, if they've got a substantial coexisting injury, so 
uh, particularly in those patients with uh, significant blunt mechanisms of injury. You think about um, hangings, anything with an axial load to the top of the head, high-speed motor vehicle crashes, those sorts of things. And, uh, and something that's um, unique to think about as well in pediatrics is patients who have underlying conditions that may place them at risk for um, cervical spine issues, such as patients with Down syndrome. Uh, that may have extra laxity of their cervical spine ligaments. Importantly, a negative x-ray, uh, plain films or CT scan, does not necessarily rule out uh, cervical spine uh, injuries as patients can have ligamentous injuries uh, that uh, will need to be evaluated by MRI. So importantly, even with negative x-rays, if they've got findings, uh, much like I just mentioned, additional consultation should be should be sought after uh, and additional imaging to rule those out. And I think I remember from my boards prep, you, you hit the two highlights is they wanted to know what kind of imaging you would go to first. And you mentioned that being x-ray um, or CT. And then the other thing was the location based on the age of the patient and with your infants um, having higher C-spine injuries. I think those are probably some key takeaways, at least from posterior neck injuries, for pediatrics at least. Yeah. So then when you start talking about more sort of anterior neck, if you will, thinking about um, what can happen up there, as you guys know, there's a lot of real estate um, and important structures that uh, exist between the clavicles and the angle of the mandible. And um, in uh, surgery, uh, we think about the zones of the neck, but even before then, it's important to do a great physical examination. So some of the hard signs of injury, uh, of a neck injury that's going to require further evaluation, uh, hard signs of a vascular injury, uh, and we, you know, we think about carotid injuries, but also kind of the upper uh, arch, proximal um, arch of the aorta can be at the thoracic inlet, so could also kind of fall into this uh, categories. Um, so any severe hemorrhage out of a wound obviously is a hard sign that, that there's, a, there's an injury, which seems... Uh, you know, Noted. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You'll get that one right on the boards. Um, expanding or pulsatile hematomas, a patient with shock and any of these findings. No radial pulse may be the only sign that there's a distal injury. Hemiplegia uh, may indicate a, a blunt cerebrovascular, penetrating cerebrovascular injury. Uh, and then uh, you think about bruise, thrills, um, difficulty phonating. Uh, obviously, if there's air bubbles coming out of a wound, that suggests uh, uh, aerodigestive injury, massive hemoptysis, hematemesis, and respiratory distress. All suggest that you're going to need to do an additional workup uh, for an injury in those areas. I talked about the zones of the neck. Uh, the zones are one, two, three, and uh, zone one is at the base, so runs from the cricoid um, to the sternal notch inferiorly, uh, and those and it contains all of the structures that you can think about in there. Uh, I won't delineate Just a couple. all of them. Yeah, there's a few things. Uh, like I said, this is all high-priced real estate. Zone two uh, is in the mid-neck, and that's cricoid to the angle of the mandible. And then zone three is from the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. Uh, so classically, uh, this has been defined, uh, these zones are really defined for penetrating injuries in adults, but it is a nomenclature that um, a lot of, uh, particularly trauma surgeons, will use when they're looking at the neck and thinking about it. Interestingly, probably more important um, years ago when there were multiple different 
pathways you could go in terms of imaging studies, scope procedures, and things like that for each zone of the neck. Um, nowadays, the number one test in looking for something, particularly in a stable patient, uh, is going to be a CT scan with contrast. And that's going to give you a lot of information in terms of uh, what's injured and where. Uh, important to get it with IV contrast so you, you can see if there's a, a vascular injury. Obviously, you'll know if there's excessive bleeding, but you may see a, a blush or a pseudoaneurysm that needs to be treated. The, there was mention of specifically esophageal trauma and the uh, evaluation of that. I think more importantly is what you covered there, but is there anything specifically that makes you think of an esophageal injury that wants to, that you want to investigate further? Yeah, esophageal injuries can be very difficult to um, sort out in the neck. In the neck, it's generally going to be related to penetrating trauma. Fairly unusual for blunt trauma mechanisms to get an uh, esophageal injury in the neck. Um, that being said, on the whole, esophageal injuries in kids from trauma is extreme, extremely uncommon wherever you look at it. Um, things that suggest an esophageal injury are, are you know, crepitus, subcutaneous air, dysphagia, you know, difficulties phonating, as mentioned. Uh, I would still start with a CT scan, but additional imaging studies that can be considered are an, esophage, uh, an esophageal uh, fluoroscopy study, so an esophagram, or uh, actually a scope, so uh, either a rigid or flexible endoscopy to look for an injury. All right, fair enough. Anything else to cover on the neck, or are we going to move on down? Yeah, I think that's all you need to know. You're set. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so if we move down there, then uh, let's, we'll cover uh, the chest next. Um, I know there's some specific physical exam findings for chest wall trauma that are probably going to raise your suspicion for higher injuries, but kind of overall approach to chest wall injuries. Again, this is very broad, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, chest injuries in kids are um, uh, somewhat common uh, in terms of thinking about pulmonary contusions. Uh, particularly with blunt injuries, obviously penetrating injuries in the right location, you can also have an intrathoracic injury. Um, the things that I think about when uh, looking at and examining uh, patients with thoracic trauma, chest trauma, is looking at their vital signs. You know, are they tachypnic? Are they hypoxic? Do they look like they have respiratory distress, nasal flaring, uh, retractions, those sorts of things? Um, distended neck veins is always a common thing to be asked in any sort of board type um, preparation. So that could suggest either a tension pneumothorax or tamponade, cardiac tamponade. So that, that's sort of the main differential for distended neck veins. Um, any pain with palpation, crepitance, uh, suggesting either uh, bony fractures, which uh, on the side are extremely uncommon in kids to have rib fractures. Uh, uh, crepitus could also be from subcutaneous air related to a, uh, a pneumothorax. And you can also look for paradoxical motion. So if you have a flail segment of uh, rib fractures, meaning uh, the same side of, of, of the chest, a rib broken multiple spots on, on several different layers uh, levels, um, those areas are at risk for paradoxical motion, which uh, can inhibit... Um, respiratory work and uh, contribute to hypoxia and hypercarbia. Is that, that's going to be more in adolescent patients, I imagine? Very uncommon in infants uh, and even younger kids. Yeah, it's going to be elasticity just yeah, kind of... They're so, um, yeah, their chest wall is so elastic that it's difficult to get rib fractures. 
Uh, and in fact, you know, looking, thinking about rib fractures, if you see that, it really suggests a fairly high uh, mechanism to the trauma. Uh, importantly, the most common chest injury in kids is a pulmonary contusion. And that's just evidence of significant force to the chest that's been transmitted through those flexible ribs and flexible chest wall to the lung itself. And those contusions can be completely asymptomatic all the way to participating to significant VQ mismatch, needing intubation. Uh, and so that's going to be a clinical decision for uh, both observation and uh, further treatment such as intensive care unit monitoring and intubation if needed. Okay. I think those are probably the big ones from a chest wall standpoint. Again, obviously, we're at the 30,000-foot view here. 100%. And obviously, you know, bruising, you know, pain, all those things are going to be universal. If, you know, if you've got pain somewhere, you should probably check out for an injury. And, uh, you know, that's sort of, uh, I think, a given usually. But uh, other thing that's talked about, you know, sort of 30,000-foot view is cardiac injuries. Most common finding for a blunt cardiac injury is tachycardia sinus tachycardia, very uncommon to have significant arrhythmias related to a blunt um, cardiac injury. Uh, usual workup for that is EKG, echocardiography, troponins can set, suggest an injury uh, and may um, uh, clue you into that. Treatment is supportive. The challenge for us is being scared and being in pain also cause tachycardia. 100%. <laughs> Yeah. Our jobs are so easy, aren't they? Yeah, it's, a, it's just figuring it out, you know. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> All right, so moving on down, um, we've got another area that's got a, a ton of structures in it. And again, we are not covering everything here, but there are some things the boards want us to know specifically. But uh, that would be the abdomen. So... <laughs> How do, you yeah. want to, how do you want to tackle that one? Yeah, this is a small, small topic of abdominal trauma in kids. So, you know, the classic is to separate this into blunt and penetrating trauma. For the purposes of kids and, and penetrating trauma, it's, um, you know, fairly straightforward. This is an ABC, uh, DE type uh, primary survey you know, following your um, ATLS protocols to resuscitate a patient, get imaging, and then uh, if the ballistic injury or knife injury has uh, violated the peritoneum, usually we think the anterior fascia, then they're going to get some sort of exploration, whether it's laparoscopy or a a laparotomy. In terms of blunt trauma, again, this is going to be uh, something that you runs on a spectrum, right? So you're going to look for things like seatbelt sign across the lower abdomen. You look for ecchymosis, obviously abdominal pain. Do they have peritonitis? Sometimes it's very difficult with a crying child, right, to, to know exactly uh, what that exam is. I think most people with some physical exam findings, pain, seatbelt sign, at a minimum or minimum are going to get screening labs for blunt abdominal trauma. And for me, that's a CBC, a CMP, a lipase, and a urinalysis. Uh, if any of those values are abnormal, particularly thinking about the uh, AST, ALT, sometimes pretty difficult to get a sense of if the hemoglobin hematocrit means anything in acute trauma. Uh, you know, the bleeding won't show up on those values for a, a little bit. Um, and uh, sometimes alkaline phosphatase can be elevated if they've got fractures, so it's hard to interpret that, that value. But it's usually the AST, ALT, and then obviously if they have 
grosser microscopic hematuria in their urinalysis. That's going to suggest the need for additional imaging. On the imaging piece, uh, I would recommend considering doing the FAST exam, the focused abdominal sonography for trauma examination of the abdomen, looking in, in uh, those four uh, intra-abdominal positions, or three intra-abdominal positions and one cardiac position to look for uh, signs of uh, hemorrhage in the abdomen, which also can lead you to think about additional imaging. For me, uh, you know, imaging of choice in patients who have symptoms or signs that suggest abdominal trauma is going to be the CT scan of the abdomen with IV contrast. We usually don't do oral contrast in trauma patients. One, it's a patient who may have altered mental status and be at risk for aspiration. And two, it takes a while for that contrast to get through uh, the GI tract and give you any information. And we really are focused on the uh, efficient evaluation and management of these patients. So IV contrast uh, is uh, recommended. Uh, also helps you identify those solid organ injuries that you uh, are going to want to look for on imaging. There was a couple specifics on here as far as um, suspected splenic rupture. I mean, you mentioned ecchymoses in the abdomen. I mean, other than the peritoneal signs, is there anything else that's leading you down that pathway? Or? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, pa- patients can have um, some uh, limited respiration. They can have pretty deep uh, pain with um, deep respiration, uh, pain in that left side. Uh, a left-sided pleural effusion may indicate something. Uh, interestingly enough, you can have pretty, uh, um, your exam can be somewhat unremarkable and you can still have a splenic injury. Um, so it's not every time that you're going to get the, um, you know, large, uh, goose egg on the anterior abdominal wall in the left upper quadrant that's going to tee you up. It may just be pain, pain with breathing, those sorts of things that uh, may lead you to, uh, diagnosis of a splenic injury. In a, in a relatively stable patient, obviously in a patient who's obtunded, has hypotension, uh, you're going to approach that patient a little bit differently. And you'll find it usually with a camera or your eyes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the, uh, in the world of pediatrics, and pediatrics has actually led this charge uh, universally in trauma, the salvage of the spleen is of utmost importance. And in fact, the splenic uh, splenectomy rate at most major children's hospitals is under 5%. So it's pretty rare to take a spleen out. Uh, the spleen on the CT scan may show a splenic, you know, quote-unquote rupture. We, we do grade these injuries from grade 1 to grade 5, um, one being a minor sort of laceration or uh, hematoma, all the way to 5, which is essentially avulsion of the spleen. And as you might imagine, the clinical picture gets worse as you go down that grading system. Um, the uh, other, so in addition to operative intervention, obviously another consideration would be um, uh, to do. Uh, why am I, I'm so blank. <laughs> interventional radiology and to put in coils. Uh, it's a Friday afternoon, folks. Uh, uh, to to coil an injury like that. Uh, if you see blush or ble- active bleeding on the CT scan uh, in a spleen uh, that's been injured, it does not uh, necessarily mean that you have to do a splenectomy. Right. 
All right. Um, and I think only one other thing is they were mentioning hematuria and kind of evaluation from that standpoint. Does the same adage hold true regarding in, in pediatric male children that if they've got blood at their urethromiatus, you have to think about how you're going to evaluate that specifically, or is it a little less common? I think the classic teaching, and most likely for a board-type examination, you're probably going to want to get imaging in a patient like that before you put in a Foley catheter. So in, for the, if there's concern for a urethral injury or bladder injury, to do a retrograde ure- urethrogram um, in the fluoroscopy suite and a cystogram. But hematuria can also signify a significant renal laceration. So uh, in those patients, I would also get a CT scan. A little bit um, more modern treatment for, or more modern imaging modality for that would be to add a delayed phase um, contrast CT cystogram. It's not standard necessarily care in pediatrics just yet, but um, it's, it's pretty common in adult institutions if you have concern for injury all the anywhere from the ureter to um, bladder all right well i mean those are those are the big systems um i i imagine there, there's another part on here that talks about multi-system trauma but i i think you hit the it's a b c d e then your head to toe exam i mean from a multi-system standpoint are you really changing a whole lot no it's the same it's the same evaluation for every patient, and the reason you do that is so you don't miss anything. It also helps you, um, you know, be efficient when you're trying to evaluate a patient who's unstable. Uh, the ABCs are extremely important. Uh, I use chest X-ray to screen for um, chest injuries. One thing I didn't mention in the chest um, section of our little talk here was that chest CT is pretty uncommonly used for the imaging of pediatric chest injuries. Chest x-ray has really been shown to be uh, adequate for nearly all cases. Uh, Things that would push me to get a chest CT specifically would be concerned for a vascular injury. So all of those classic findings for uh, aortic injury, you know, blunted aortic knob, widened mediastinum, which can be hard in some kids because they've got a big thymus. So uh, it's, uh, it, most papers will, will, will say that the chest CT is pretty um, extraneous in most workups. Which is good. You know, their, their thyroid and the rest of their internal thoracic structures would love not getting that radiation if they could avoid it. Exactly. We do a lot of unnecessary um, CT scans. That's a separate talk, though. Yeah, another talk, yes. <laughs> All right, Dr. Landman, anything else we should cover uh, for our pediatric talk on trauma? Um, I think that's it. It's a pretty wide topic, so best of luck. <laughs> All right, thanks so much.